A Mouthful of Air, a poetry podcast with Mark McGuinness. Adelstrop by Edward Thomas Yes, I remember Adelstrop, the name, because one afternoon of heat the express train drew up there unwantedly. It was late June. The steam hissed. Someone cleared his throat. No one left and no one came on the bare platform. What I saw was Adelstrop, only the name. And willows, willow herb and grass, and meadow sweet and haycocks dry, no whit less still and lonely fair than the high cloudlets in the sky. And for that minute a blackbird sang close by, and round him, mistier, farther and farther, all the birds of Oxfordshire and Gloucestershire. To me, this is about as close as you can get to a perfect short poem. It's like a miniature landscape painting that the more you look at it, the more you find. You can get drawn into it until it feels like the little painting has come to life and you can actually see the willows and the willow herbs and grasses swaying in the breeze and you can hear the birdsong spreading across the fields. And you could say it's a superficial poem in the best sense, in that it evokes the scene with just a few beautifully judged details. But it also feels like a very subtle and suggestive poem. It is a poem of stops and starts. And I think these stops and starts are a key to the way the poem works. So, first of all, there's that wonderful opening. Yes, I remember Adelstrop. It's as if we've just walked in on the middle of a conversation where someone has mentioned Adelstrop, the name of a little village in Gloucestershire in England, and someone else, the speaker of the poem, is replying, Oh yes, I remember Adelstrop. Such a beautifully casual, conversational opening line that plunges us right into the scene. It's as if the speaker is responding to this other person or maybe interrupting them with his own train of thought, if you'll excuse the pun. So right from the first word of the poem, we've got this sense of stopping something and starting something else. And what the speaker starts talking about is the simple fact of a train stopping at this tiny little village station in the middle of nowhere. And he says that the train stops unwantedly, which is a rather old-fashioned, archaic, poetic way of saying that it didn't normally stop here. So we get the sense he's, he's slightly surprised to find that the train has stopped. 
And there's a lovely blog post on the UK National Archives website by Bruno Derrick, who has unearthed the Great Western Railway's timetable for the 24th of June 1914, which we know from Edward Thomas's notebook was the day he took the journey he described in the poem. I'll make sure I link to the blog post in the show notes. And what the timetable shows is that Adelstrop was, in fact, a scheduled and expected stop on the journey from London Paddington to Kidderminster. It was due to arrive at Adelstrop at 12.48pm. And this timetable coincides exactly with the timings recorded by Thomas in his notebook. So a big hand across the internet to Mr Derrick for this research, because as he points out, it makes a big difference to the poem whether the stop was unwanted, i.e. habitual and expected, or not. Because, of course, an unexpected stop is much more poetic than an expected one, isn't it? It gives these few moments at the station the quality of a pause, a hiatus, a lacuna. An in-between space where the train has stopped and it's about to start up again and take us to our destination and all our commitments and responsibilities and decisions and their consequences will come back into play. But for these few moments, we're outside all of that. It's held in abeyance. And it takes a poet to notice this space, or at least to care so much about it that they write it down and try to say something about it. To try to answer the question of what happens in this space. I can't help thinking about another famous poem, Leisure, by the Welsh poet W.H. Davies, who was a close friend of Edward Thomas, which begins What is this life if, full of care, we have no time to stand and stare? Adelstrop is a poem about a moment of stopping and staring, and also listening. And if we stay with this idea of stopping and starting, we can hear it in the movement of the poem itself. Listen to that opening line again. Yes, I remember Adelstrop. We get one word, yes, one syllable, then a full stop. So the poem stops as soon as it starts. Then we get a dash at the end of the line after Adelstrop. So that's another stop. The next line goes, the name, comma, because one afternoon of heat, that phrase spills over the end of the line into the next line and ends with a comma in the middle of the line. So that's another tiny little stop. Then we get, the express train drew up there unwantedly. Full stop. It was late June, full stop at the end of the line, which is also the end of the stanza. So, obviously I'm exaggerating this for emphasis, but what Thomas is doing very skillfully here is he's working with and against the formal structure of the poem. So, the basic structure, which you can see more easily if you look at the text in the show notes at amouthfulofair.fm, is four stanzas of four lines, with four beats, four stresses to every line. So it's very much a four-square grid that he's working with. 
And Edward Thomas was a very experienced and influential poetry critic as well as a poet. So we can be confident that he would be absolutely aware of this structure and consciously playing with it. And what poets do with a grid like this is sometimes you go with it and you stick to it very rigidly and you get a very regular movement like titum, 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 titum. That's a basic iambic tetrameter, which the mathematicians among us will recognize as a close cousin of the iambic pentameter. So the pentameter has five beats, titum, 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 while the tetrameter is slightly shorter with just four beats, titum, 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 titum. So you get a tighter, snappier, crispier, <laughs> I nearly said crispier, <laughs> I meant crisper rhythm with a tetrameter. So if you go with the meter and stick to it quite strictly, and you also align the end of the phrases neatly with the end of the lines, you get a strong forward motion, which can feel like a regimented marching pace or sometimes like a sweetly flowing stream. You get a line like this one from the third stanza of Adelstrop. No witless still and lonely fair. Can you hear those four beats? No witless still and lonely fair. Obviously, it sounds a bit mechanical when I exaggerate it, but hopefully that makes the meter, the pulse of the line, nice and clear. So, that is the basic template Edward Thomas is using, but he doesn't follow it mechanically. Several lines, particularly in the first couple of stanzas, have an extra syllable here and there, and he also allows some of the stresses to shift around, giving the poem a looser, more conversational feeling. And as we've seen, what he does right from the very first syllable is to interrupt the regular forward motion of the poem with some phrases ending in the middle of the line and some running over from one line to another. And this stop-start pattern continues into the second stanza. The steam hissed, full stop. Someone cleared his throat, full stop. Then, no one left and no one came on the bare platform, full stop. And let's just pause to appreciate the wonderful banality of nobody coming or going. Then we get, what I saw was Adelstrop, and another long dash. <laughs> okay, I think I've made my point about all the stopping and starting in these first two stanzas. But why is the poet doing this? Because the movement of the poem is mimetic of the experience he's describing. It's a moment when a regular forward motion, the clackety-clack of the train, has just been interrupted. And what we're left with is the motion of the mind in that in-between time at the platform. You see, each of these self-contained phrases is a moment of perception, of noticing a single detail, the steam hissing, someone clearing his throat, realising that no one is getting off or on at this stop, the name on the station sign. And this is really how the mind works in idle moments, isn't it? We notice one thing and then another, and then maybe our thoughts start to wander. And as a poet myself, I have to say I'm intensely envious of Thomas's skill here in conjuring up the whole scene with an almost cinematic clarity and intensity 
with just these few finely judged details. Okay, back to the very end of the second stanza. After was Adelstrop, dash, we get only the name, which is the end of the line and also the end of the whole stanza. But, gasp, there is no full stop. And so, after all those hard stops, it feels like we've shot through a barrier and over the cliff edge into space. But instead of crashing to Earth, the poem takes flight. And willows, willow herb and grass, and meadow sweet and haycocks dry, no whit less still and lonely fair than the high cloudlets in the sky. Can you hear that? <laughs> That's right. The full stops have stopped. The iambic tetrameter is running free like a puppy in the fields. And after all the everyday details of the steam engine and the platform and the throat clearing and the station sign, we've got trees and herbs and flowers and grasses and little clouds in the sky. It feels like we've entered the realm of proper poetry, at least according to traditional tastes. I mean, out of context, I could probably persuade you that that last stanza was by Wordsworth, or at a stretch, maybe even Shakespeare. And I don't think it's a coincidence that the language has gone back in time with the archaic diction and the inverted syntax of no wit less still and lonely fair. I mean, that could be Tennyson writing about the days of King Arthur, couldn't it? So what we've got is a contrast between the old world and the new one. The poem starts with the steam engine, the symbol of modernity and progress and the future, and also suggestive of the linear passage of time. And then in this third stanza, we enter the romantic world of poetry with a capital P with a rhythmic, rhyming evocation of the ancient world of the countryside, of romance and beauty and timelessness. And what happens next in the fourth and final stanza is quite weird, because Thomas somehow resolves this tension and makes the poem, on the one hand, more down-to-earth, ending with the place names Oxfordshire and Gloucestershire, but at the same time, it becomes even more poetic and even more moving. And for that minute a blackbird sang close by, and round him, mistier, father and father, all the birds of Oxfordshire and Gloucestershire. Isn't that just magnificent? And I've read this goodness knows how many times, and I still don't know how he gets away with Oxfordshire and Gloucestershire at the end. Because it's easy to see how an ending like that could have gone horribly wrong. It could be really jarring and banal, and bring us back down to earth with a bump, like something by the famously terrible Scottish poet William McGonagall. But somehow, it's beautiful and uplifting, and indescribably bittersweet. And I can say a few things about it, but I still think there's a bit of a mystery here, which we have to put down to Edward Thomas having a pitch-perfect ear for poetry. Now, there's something obviously poetic about birdsong floating across the landscape, almost like mist. 
And also the idea of multiplication, you know, father and father. Not just one bird, but all of them. As if they were part of some vast network that's springing into life. And it's as if, by the act of listening to the birdsong, the speaker is connected to that network. And maybe we are too, by the act of reading the poem. And the overall effect is, is like the poetic equivalent of a drone shot that suddenly zooms up so that we can see all the fields and the birds spreading out below us. Another way I think we can come at this ending and get a sense of how it works is by imagining if Edward Thomas had continued in the same vein as the third stanza, by sticking to the time-worn imagery of willows and herbs and grasses and little clouds in the sky. Now, I'm sure he could have made a very nice ending out of that, and it would have been a charming poem, but it wouldn't have been an extraordinary poem, because it's the ending that makes it extraordinary. Okay, so I think we've reached the same point we got to in episode 14 when I talked about Thomas Wyatt's poem, They Flee From Me. In other words, everything I've said so far has been confined to what is contained within the poem itself. But now, I'm going to peep outside the poem a little and say something about the biographical and historical context and see what, if anything, that can add to our appreciation of the poem. And this is always a live question for me, how much it count to take of context when reading a poem. As you may have gathered by now, I'm not a fan of the biographical approach to poetry, where the poem's read primarily in terms of what we know about the poet's life, because very quickly the poem itself can get forgotten in favour of the gossipy details or overshadowed by the magnitude of important events. But sometimes context does add to our understanding and appreciation of a poem, and I think this is one of those times when the stops and starts of history add another dimension to Adelstrop. Because if you know anything about Edward Thomas, you will know that he's usually described as a war poet. He was one of a generation of young men that produced a generation of poets who responded in different ways to the experience of the First World War. But Thomas is an unusual war poet because he didn't write directly about the war very much at all. Poets like Wilfred Owen and Isaac Rosenberg and Siegfried Sassoon and Ivor Gurney are what we could call full-frontal war poets, giving us the blood and guts, this is the reality of war that you folks at home need to know about, version of war poetry. But Thomas doesn't do that. He writes mostly about the English countryside, so you could have a naive reading of his poetry, you know, if the poems were discovered in a few hundred years' time with no awareness of their historical context, people might think, Oh, what a lovely nature poet. But the fact is, he was writing this stuff in the context of a war that he fought and died in. And there's a poignancy to that knowledge that opens up extra layers of meaning in a poem like Adelstrop. So, with our historical detective glasses on, let's look at a few relevant facts. 
As we saw earlier, the journey Thomas writes about in Adelstrop took place on the 24th of June 1914, which was just a month before the outbreak of World War I. So war was very much in the air, but it hadn't actually started. And interestingly, another thing that hadn't started at that point was Thomas's career as a poet. He was an experienced prose writer by this time, and he had reviewed a lot of poetry, but he hadn't written any of it himself. What he had done, thankfully for English poetry, was make some notes about the train stop in his notebook, including the steam and the willow herbs and meadow sweet and the silence followed by the blackbirds singing. So it was clearly a significant experience that he wanted to preserve, and those notes gave him the raw material for the poem. And he started writing poetry at the end of 1914 and wrote a lot of poems during the war, including Adelstrop, which was published in the New Statesman magazine in 1917, three weeks after Thomas was killed in action in northern France. And Thomas was actually a volunteer in the army. As a slightly older married man, he would have qualified for an exemption, so he could have avoided the fighting. And he was an anti-nationalist who hated the jingoistic tone of the war propaganda and who said that the Germans were not his enemies. So he agonised over the decision, but eventually he concluded that the right thing to do was to sign up and play his part. So it's kind of heartbreaking to think that in the depths of the war, he was writing a poem about a memory of that train stopping at Adelstrop on a summer's day. It must have felt like a touchstone of lost innocence, a moment before the shooting started, before the decision of whether to enlist in the army was forced upon him. And he made something beautiful and haunting out of that memory. And the poem only saw the light of day just after he was killed. So the stops and starts of history mean that the poem is bookended by the start of the war and the premature ending of Thomas's life. And for once, it feels like the muse of history was in step with the muses of poetry. And looking again at the final line of Adelstrop, I can't help thinking that Gloucestershire and Oxfordshire, well, strictly Oxford and Buckinghamshire, were the names of regiments that fought in the First World War. And all over those counties to this day are memorials to men and women who died in that war, which adds another twinge of poignancy to the image of birdsong spreading across the fields of those counties, especially in the light of a comment Thomas made about patriotism that his real countrymen were the birds. So, a knowledge of the context means that the war becomes an unspoken and haunting presence in the poem, and maybe makes us look again at the lines, no one left and no one came on the bare platform. And it's one of the things that makes Adelstrop a masterpiece of understatement.
Adelstrop by Edward Thomas Yes, I remember Adelstrop, the name, because one afternoon of heat the express train drew up there unwantedly. It was late June. The steam hissed. Someone cleared his throat. No one left and no one came on the bare platform. What I saw was Adelstrop, only the name, and willows, willow herb and grass, and meadow sweet and haycocks dry, no whit less still and lonely fair than the high cloudlets in the sky. And for that minute a blackbird sang close by, and round him, mistier, farther and farther, all the birds of Oxfordshire and Gloucestershire. Edward Thomas was born in England to Welsh parents in 1878 and was killed in action in France in 1917. Between graduating from Oxford and enlisting in the army, he became an experienced prose writer, writing book reviews and poetry criticism, as well as biography, books about the English countryside and a novel. His literary friendships included the poets W.H. Davies and Robert Frost. He started writing poetry after the outbreak of the First World War, producing a major body of work in a few short years. He is one of 16 poets from the First World War commemorated on a stone in Poets' Corner in Westminster Abbey. A Mouthful of Air is a poetry podcast hosted by Mark McGuinness. New episodes are released every other Tuesday. If you enjoy the show and you'd like to help me reach more poetry lovers, you can do this by telling a friend about it or by taking a few seconds to leave a rating or even a brief review on Apple Podcasts. If you would like a full transcript of Every episode sent to you via email, including the poem text, you can sign up for this at amouthfulofair.fm slash subscribe. If you'd like to follow the show on social media, you can find all the links as well as a full episode archive at amouthfulofair.fm. The music and soundscapes for the show are created by Javier Whaler. Sound production is by Breaking Waves and visual identity by Irene Hoffman. A Mouthful of Air is produced by the 21st Century Creative with support from Arts Council England via a National Lottery Project grant. Thank you for listening. I'll be back soon with another poem.